Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, the show that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed at networks and streamers but never produced, and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and host of Dead Pilot Society, and this is the after show for young professionals featuring my interview with David Litt. This uh, just turns out to be really well-timed, totally by accident, because the White House Correspondents' Dinner is this Saturday night, and David was the lead writer on four White House Correspondents' Dinners. So it really seems like we did this on purpose, but we didn't. Uh, as I mentioned last week, David was a speechwriter for President Obama, and we talk about his path to that job, which started with comedy. As you'll hear, he was into comedy way before he was into politics. He was quite the precocious uh, young stand-up. Um, but he's become a very wise and very clear voice in the world of politics, and I'd really recommend uh, his books, especially Democracy in One Book or Less, uh, as well as his opinion writing. And Thanks, Obama, I'm sure is great. I just I haven't read it. Sorry, David, haven't read it yet, but I will. Um, uh, as well as his opinion writing in The Guardian and elsewhere. He really he knows his stuff, which is clear from the pilot, which hopefully you listen to. Uh, but we get into even more insider knowledge here, like how the cool kids refer to the president. You know, it was great catching up with a fellow exit player. Uh, you'll understand what that means in a minute. And here is my interview with David Litt after a brief message. Hi, I'm Jackie Cation. Hello, I'm Lori Kimmerton. We do a podcast called The Jackie and Lori Show, and you could listen to it anytime you want it because there's hundreds of episodes. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing comedy forever, and we should both quit. So why don't you listen up <laughs> before we leave this not only terrible business, but this awful world. And find out why we can't. <laughs> because we love it so. The Jackie and Lori Show, every week here on MaximumFun.org. No, let's work. do it, David. You were <laughs> saying it was fun. I want to hear that. Yeah. No, it's cool. So this is actually, I don't think I, no, I know I did not tell you this. So I have never heard, I've never written an episode of television that anyone has read out loud before. This is a oh first for me. So wow. I've, I've developed stuff, you know, I've done other pilots since then, but none of them have been, uh, you know, none of them have been produced. And so uh, I very carefully did not mention this to you. And I emailed and said, Hey, what do you think of this one? Um, but for me, this was a really cool experience because that was the first time I've ever heard any sort of table reading of a script I've done. So, uh, you know, I definitely learned a lot, but I also was like, oh, actors, they're really good at what they do. This is great. <laughs> That's so cool. I mean, in, in just about every case, people are hearing the pilot, the dead pilot read aloud for the first time. But I don't know that it's ever happened that it's someone hearing their work read aloud for the first time. Because, you know, let, 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 let's face it, you know, as I say in the intro every time, you know, we take comedy pilots from A-list writers, uh, you know, and, and I consider you, David, an A-list writer, not based on your body of television work, but, uh, you know, based on other things. So I think you, I think you sneak into that A-list. Uh, yes, it depends on which list <laughs> you're talking about. I think that was the, that was the way we, made this kind of, uh, you know, legally acceptable, according to the Dead Pilot Society rule. Yes, exactly. You're esteemed enough in other <laughs> fields. Um, I love, by the way, I was just it. like, I, I uh, was looking up your Wikipedia entry 
um, before we have time. What I love is that it mentions the Yale exit players. So for listeners, the exit players were an improv comedy group at Yale that I directed when I was there, didn't really exactly found, but sort of turned it into an improv comedy group from a sort of experimental theater group. And that you, David, many years after I graduated were also in. I just love that. It's like on your yeah. page. Well, so this was, I forget if I've told you this, but the when when they did the kind of final pitch, right, of why join the exit players, they were like, well, you could be, you were like the alumnus, you know, <laughs> uh, the, the, the alumnus of note, right? It was like, well, our alumni include Andrew Reich and Ted Cohen from Friends. <laughs> Someone's almost, I don't forget exactly who, but so that was the first time I heard of you was, because it was kind of like you know you could you should join this improv group and then of course because it was Yale it was pre-professional even though it shouldn't have been it was like one day you could aspire to be Andrew Reich and or <laughs> be on a Zoom with Andrew Reich it turned out <laughs> wow that's that's pretty funny and uh, there's some other esteemed alums too so that so let's oh, yeah. um so your path to TV writing um let's I mean let's talk about how you started speech writing like how you got to the Obama White House. Yeah, so I actually started, I didn't think I was ever going to do speech writing. And I definitely didn't think I was ever going to work in politics or anything like that. When I was 15, I grew up in Manhattan, and I started doing stand up. So I would do stand up at clubs, you know, amateur nights in the city, and I would do stuff at, um, you know, uh, talent shows at school, stuff like that. I was like the weird 15 year old who like brings his mom so he can do an, a, you know five minutes at Stand Up New York on 78th Street or whatever. And so I thought I was going to do comedy and I really wanted to, do, that was what I want to focus on. And so when I was at school, I did not do a lot of like actual school stuff um, and spend a lot more time focusing on improv and editing a humor magazine and all that. So I interned at The Onion the summer before I started on the Obama campaign after my junior year. And then in 2008, uh, I graduated in 2008. So the primary campaign was um, just kind of heating up during my senior year of college. And I saw Obama on TV you know, give a speech after the Iowa caucuses. And I was one of those young people that just caught the Obama bug. I was like, okay, never mind. Whatever he's doing, I want to be part of that. And so I went to Ohio. I worked as a field organizer, moved to DC without any sort of plan. Um, that's that era, the era of my life that like year of my life is basically what the the pilot was loosely based on and then i ended up falling bass backwards into a speechwriting firm which was a terrific place to be i didn't really even know that speechwriting firms existed and from there they had one of the partners at that firm jeff nussbaum does a lot of jokes for politicians and he would pitch jokes to the obama team so i ended up getting a couple of jokes and uh some of those speeches for president obama and a few years later, um, I was about to leave for Chicago to work on the re-election campaign. And I met with John Favreau, who now is you know, known as the Pod Save America host at the time, was the chief speechwriter uh, in the White House. And, and he said, listen, you can leave and move to Chicago and we'll figure something out, You know, find an organizing job. But Valerie Jarrett, who's the president's chief speechwriter, is looking for a speechwriter. Sorry, the president's chief advisor is looking for a speechwriter. She hasn't been able to find one. So either you can uh, you know, apply for our team, which probably won't happen, or you can be the only applicant for a White House speechwriting job for her. And I was like, that sounds good. I'll do that second one. Um, and so I ended up 
sticking around and being the only applicant for a job, which I did get. And from there, I worked on the campaign in 2012 and then came back and was part of the president's team for a couple of years and ended up doing a lot of the the jokes in addition to a lot of the serious stuff because for DC purposes, I had a comedy background. That was a very long no, way of saying, saying that's how I ended up there. But that's, uh, yeah, that's basically what happened. So you were part of, once you moved from Valerie to the president, so you were on that team with Favreau and those, the other Pod Save America folks? Yeah, the way I always kind of describe it to people is that it was like they were seniors when I was a freshman, Like uh-huh. I would sort of sit in the back. Uh, they were really nice. Um, Favreau in particular, he would invite me to the speechwriting team meetings, even though I wasn't technically part of the president's team. And I would just sit in the back and be like, wow, these guys are like funny and smart. And then basically then they did a podcast and everybody in America was like, these guys are funny and smart. I was like, I know I was, I was there in the back of the meeting. Um, But so, and so they, I think Babs left the white house in 2013 and Lovett left in 2011 or 2012. I forget the exact, but so they kind of were, you know, they had been there for a while and then were, eyeing the next thing uh, around the time that I got there. And then after when the second term started, there was kind of some turnover. And that's how I ended up on the president's team. And just, um, well, I guess I want to know if you think Obama will listen to this podcast. <laughs> I think he definitely will. Okay. I think there's no question. Do you think he'll listen to both the table read and this interview? Yes, uh, I think I think yeah. he will. And yeah, I'm actually, I'm pretty sure because he's got okay. a lot of free time and a ton of interest <laughs> in what I'm up to. Uh, <laughs> okay. All right. I mean, that's yeah. a, I think we're done. I, I mean, I really yeah, just wanted to ask it. you that. Yeah. Um, how just it feels like. I mean, it, it's such a poor analogy, but I remember when I came on to the Friends writing stuff in the fourth season, you know, it was just like this incredibly yeah. intimidating thing. I mean, was it how intimidating was it to just be joining that team? You're such a young guy. And well, it, I. I imagine it's not a bad analogy at all. And you'll have to tell me what it was like, mm-hmm. but it was totally terrifying. And also a sense of like, these people really know what they're doing. So it, it, that's the other piece of it, right? I think when I got there, I was like, I've got big ideas. That was about <laughs> two weeks of kind of thinking that. And I was like, oh no, they, there's a reason that like, you know, he he was elected president and like has done pretty <laughs> well the first couple of years without me being like a junior guy in the White House. So it was a lot of learning, okay, here's what I can contribute as somebody coming into something that is already working very well with a president who is remarkably good at, and not just speaking, but also at writing. So he really knew good writing when he saw it and also knew bad writing when he saw it, which is a scary thing for a speechwriter in some ways, but also really nice. And um, so I think, you know, but it was, I, I think it was easily four years into that job, which is almost when I was leaving the job where I could sort of breathe during a speech. And, you know, these were not, for the most part, huge speeches, right? I was never the chief speechwriter. So it wasn't like President Obama was really stressed. I mean, he didn't really get stressed about most speeches, but he was certainly not really stressed about whether like the joke was going to land or whether, you know, this speech on the education policy he was rolling out was going to go perfectly. So it was this weird disconnect where for him, it was obviously just another day. But then, of course, if you're the speechwriter doing it, you're just in a state of permanent shock until it's done. And, um, you know, it was I do think and I'm not certainly not the first person to say this. There's a lot of Veep in everyone in the Obama White House loved Veep because it has that like everything could go wrong because of something really unexpectedly stupid. 
Um, <laughs> that, is, that is the constant fear. Um, and sometimes that did happen, but most of the time it worked out okay. How often were you in a room with the president, like talking about like a joke in a speech or something? Um, I would say once every couple of months when I started and then maybe once a month when I was by the time I left, maybe less. I don't know. The only the big exception was the Correspondence Center speeches, because and those are like the joke monologues. Yeah. You know, it's been a while, I think, since it's been in the news. So just, you know, <laughs> a trip down memory lane. The president used to tell a bunch of jokes and there wasn't like there was less high stakes and generally fine. And um, but for for the correspondence center speeches, it was different because this is all new. So if the president was saying, all right, here's what I think about community colleges, it's going to be very similar to the last 10 things he said about community colleges. Jokes are new. And also and, and President Obama understood this about jokes in a way some, some politicians don't that the everything matters a lot, right? Word choice matters a lot, where the commas go, where the pauses are, you know, right. are you putting a, a word at the beginning of the sentence or the end? All of that really matters in a joke. And so for those, we would usually meet about four times over the course of a week with him and kind of go through stuff. And, you know, he, he'd read stuff out loud or sometimes, you know, at the beginning, just kind of look through and be like, oh, yeah, that's pretty good. Or like, you know, whatever, uh, you kind of give us some indication of what he liked and make edits. Um, and then we would you know, we'd eventually do a run through and, um, and then he'd go do the speech. So that was a, for me, an exception was like, I got a lot of time and spent a lot of time with him specifically around the joke writing that I didn't, right. you know, if it was like, whatever infrastructure rollout. Yeah. Did you ever get a good, like get laughs in the room from him on those, like when you're we talking, going through that correspondence dinner material? Yes. The, <laughs> the biggest laugh I ever got from him actually was in, um, 2013, we uh, we we used to do these slides in addition to the jokes, right? Like it, every president does this differently. The George W. Bush team would do almost all, or they did a lot, let's just say, of slides because it was kind of like the, the president does the punchline. They have a funny slide, and we would do a couple of those just because people like pictures. And one of them was a couple of pictures of President Obama with Michelle Obama's new haircut. She got bangs in 2013, and everyone's talking about it. And so we photoshopped him with, with these bangs and it was kind of cute, except right before, like two days before the speech or a day before the speech, I got a call from one of the other speechwriters who said, is the joke in this picture that President Obama looks like Hitler? And I looked at this <laughs> picture and with these bangs and like you'd have to have seen the picture, which you never will. But he looked shockingly like Hitler in this picture. No mustache, <laughs> just the bangs. But it was really it was an uncanny resemblance. And about a day later, we were going through it with him. And, and I was assuming that he wouldn't remember, you know, which slides were in there. But he got to that one. And it was of him with Bibi Netanyahu, the, the at the time and yet again, prime minister of Israel, which made things even worse. And he said, yeah, what happened to that picture of Bibi? I thought that one was kind of funny. And I, there was like a <laughs> silence in the room. And finally, you know, I was uh, with Favreau and Lovett. They had come back for that one. And uh, no one wanted to say anything. And it was sort of like swiveled over to me. And I finally said, Mr. President, um, we couldn't use that one. You looked a little like Hitler in it. And he just, I've never seen him laugh harder than in that moment. I just, I think of all the things he thought he might hear. That was just not the one he ever expected to hear. Um, so that was the biggest laugh I got from him in the room. And then other, you know, it was funny. He was very good at giving notes in, in a weird way. Like he was good at saying, 
he would never say this isn't funny, but he would just say like, I don't really get this one. And that was like a never, let's never speak of this again. <laughs> um, but it was a, it was very gentle and very firm. Like, nope, nope, this is done. Right. I mean, that seems like it's high pressure enough, even without him like coming down hard on the things that, that die. Right. It just seems yeah. like you're already going to be feeling <laughs> the pressure anyway. Oh my gosh. No, I like, I had to go, I remember I bought like a, um, one of those like sleep retainers for people who grind their teeth, one <laughs> correspondence dinner season. Cause it was just, it, you know, obviously it was not the most important thing going on in America at the time, but if you're the one who's like, you know, it was writing the whole thing, but the way I always put it is if it went badly, it would have been my fault. If you're responsible for it, um, you, you should feel a lot of pressure. And I certainly did. Uh, and it was, it was really fun, but it was also totally terrifying. Yeah. Jesus. Okay. So there's a big, um, you know, change of showrunners, I guess, in 2016, right? Uh, you know, the show you're yes, working now, on. Now that's a great analogy. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> so you put, you decide with this new showrunner, like, I, I don't think I'm going to stick around. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, what's the, what was the next uh, step? Was, do you, you know, start writing the first book after that right away? Or what happened in 2016? So I'd actually left in the beginning of 2016. This was not intentional, but I left in January 2016 just because I was, it's like a cliche, but true. I was starting to get a little bit burned out. And we had a really good team. So I kind of had this moment of like, the country's going to be fine if I'm mm -hmm. not there. And, you know, there's also a lot of people who are, who I knew who were like in the running for that job when I left and it was like, they're going to be thrilled to have it. You know, I, I feel like that's an important DC thing, right? If you think I can't leave or the country will fall apart in a rare <laughs> group of cases that is true and you should stay but most of the time it'll be all right and so i left um and i left i i started working at funnier die um because i had gotten to know the people running funnier die when they came to the white house to do between two ferns with potus and we had stayed in touch and and so i worked for them and then while i was doing that i also wrote a book that was a lot of these stories about basically all the time I embarrassed myself in front of the president, um, which that came out in 2017, but I started working on it in 2016. I finished the manuscript of the book, sort of very confident that I wouldn't need to make a lot of changes. And then the election happened and I was like, oh, okay, I have a, a book to rewrite, not to mention a lot of other things to worry about. And so, um, yeah, so that ended up being what I did, what I did next. And so, and that's thanks, Obama. Uh, that's thanks Obama. Yeah. And I, for me, it was really, it was a very cool experience to get to just spend a year thinking about the experience I had just had. I think mm -hmm. that's something I didn't think about so much with books is that you get paid in part to write and, you know, hopefully write something people will like to read, but you also just get paid to kind of sit and think and process and take time with something, which I think is very hard to find in other types of writing. Um, you can do it a little bit, but there's there's a trend towards shorter and shorter times between the writing starting and the writing ending and i think books are still something you can kind of marinate in and that was a really it was really interesting to have to go back and say okay i know what happened i know what's funny i know the stories that people like to hear but what did it mean or what's the point of it and then it was really uh i so i, I really am glad i got to do that and so you're you're working at Funny or Die. Like, when do you start thinking about doing, you know, sort of scripted TV? It's where I was thinking about that question because I was trying to be ready for our conversation, <laughs> and I was like, I actually have no idea. I think it was one of those things where um, it's sort of once you have a a book in the works, 
and, you know, an interesting experience and so forth, you, you kind of just get sucked into the like, well, do you have a, a book and that's IP and you're like, what's IP? And then, but before you know it, you're kind of thinking about it. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, this sounds like fun um, and I'd love to try it. And so, and I had ended up right when I left the White House, um, I had met with different agents beforehand and I ended up with UTA. And so they have like a books to film and books to TV. So that was their original thinking about it was, you know, I knew I wanted to write it, but it was much more like, how can we find some partners for you where you can turn this book into not really a movie, right? It was never going to be a movie, but how can you turn this into a show? Um, And also I just had a lot of friends who were out in LA who were doing entertainment in in one form or another. And that made it seem very possible in a way that I don't think it would have if I had had a different, you know, sort of group. I mean, kind of goes back to college. Like I would say half of my friends from improv in college are out in LA, you know, writing, producing something. And so it just seems like a job in a way that I had never really thought it seemed like a job before they went out and did it. And so was the, was Thanks Obama ever sort of sold as a pilot? Did that sort of turn into to young professionals or was it that a different no, project? No, it never was. The more I okay. thought about it. So what happened was I met through, through UTA that kind of did like a, you know, setting, setting everything up. So I met with Abby and Alana from Broad City and, um, and, you know, we just got coffee somewhere in Los Angeles and we're talking a little bit about it. And to me, and this became more and more clear as we had this conversation, I felt like the, the book did not map itself onto a TV show because then you end up in weird questions, right? Like who plays Obama, which is kind of a strange right. thing. And also like, does every story that's in the book have to be kind of one-to-one and V yeah. was still on the air. And it was like doing a show about the white house. That's funny seems really like a bad idea when there's an amazing show about the White House. I can't imagine when that's going to be funnier. So it felt to me like the ideas from the book, which was this sort of mix of being totally in over my head as a person, but then thrust into all of these experiences in DC where you have real responsibilities and what you do really matters. Take that and kind of impose a sort of friend style comedy on top of it. And that became young professionals. And, and in the end, you know, I didn't end up um, optioning it or, or trying to turn it directly into a show because I couldn't quite see how that would work. Okay. So, so with Abby, this is Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer, right? So yes. with, with them, you sort of shaped young professionals and, um, and took out the pitch that you did the three of you pitch together or you know how did it work once you got hooked up with them yeah so we had our kind of initial conversation and and part of that too was they were asking me about some of my dc experiences and i think that's when i had brought up this house that i lived in in 2009 i think or 2010 i was 23 i was living with five other 23 year olds and it was this mansion that is now being you know renovated and sold for an outlandish sum of money but at the time was falling apart and was just being rented to like rotating groups of young people. And everybody kind of did something different and ended up in DC a different way, but they all, you know, everyone was, it was just a great year. I mean, it was one of those years that felt like it was five years long in a good way. 
And that felt like a place where a show might take place. And it felt also like a, a place where people might all be starting out and might go in different directions. It didn't have to all be about speechwriters in the White House or something like that. And they, they thought that was cool too. And then some of the stuff came from that first meeting. Like, I think it was Abby who said, one of, one, of, one of them's just a waitress, right? Not a DC job. And that's, so the whole Bethany character just came out of that thought where I was like, yo, that makes a ton of sense. And also kind of the, the world I was coming from, I was like, oh, we can do that, right? Like we don't need to have everyone have a messaging point. Somebody can just like be funny and be there. And so, um, so we worked on the, on the pitch document for a while and on the pitch. And then we took it to, originally we took it to broadcast and we took it to all four broadcast networks and all four of them passed on it. And then we took it to a couple of um, streamers and also cable. And it was around the time, I think it became part of the Abby Alana overall deal with Comedy Central. This was all there at the time I was like, what's, I had to Google what is an overall deal while finding <laughs> out that I was somehow associated with one uh, tangentially. Um, but that, that's basically what happened. So we sold it to Comedy Central through that, did a version for Comedy Central. Um, and then after uh, Comedy Central had passed on it, we then took it back to a bunch of other networks, including ABC, where I think there had been uh, you know, changing of the guard. And so the new team at ABC really liked it. They had us retool it and then it ended up there. So that's the version that um, was that, that was the read that we did. And how different were those Comedy Central and ABC versions? They were pretty different. Um, I, so part of it was just tone, right? There was a little bit more kind of like raunchy stuff. Like there were more masturbation jokes in the Comedy Central version, for sure. But it was also much more male, which sounds weird because one of the things listening to it, I was like, whoa, this is almost all just guys talking to each other. <laughs> but even more so in the Comedy Central version, it was very much the David and Suresh show. And a, one of ABC's notes, which I thought was great, and which frankly, I, I wish I had done a better job implementing was make this more about David and Lily, um, you know, so that they're kind of co-main characters in the pilot. And, and you can sort of see where a lot of the story had come from, because there's a lot more David and Suresh, because that's what we showed up with, with a, with a script. Um, and so that was a big difference. And then I do think that the other big difference was ABC had not wanted the, it to end with David moving into the house. Like that wasn't the big, um, it wasn't supposed to be the big moment because it was uh, schmuck bait, like another jargon word I did not know, but fair enough. Like we all know he's going to end up in the house. Um, and so I think they wanted it to feel a little bit less uh, you know, a little less like, let's set that up as the the big moment of tension because we all know where this is going. And I thought that was a good note as well. So we we ended up with kind of two different things. And that's one thing, if I was like doing it all over again, I would have changed. I would have tried to just do something totally different from the house. Um, but we kind of, we kept little vestigial bits from the Comedy Central piece in there. Um, yeah, so it was, it was substantially different, uh, you know, same bones, but like totally new kind of whatever architecture on top of that. Right. But this is, you know, when you, you know, you had the choice of which to submit, you know, to send me and you did, you sent this one. Yeah. Um, I think I had, we had more, more time to polish this one. And I liked that this was um, a little, you know, I liked that there were at least more women with stuff to do um, compared to the Comedy Central one. And I just felt like this was the one I'd spent more time with in the end. The Comedy Central right. process was relatively quick right we submitted a script they gave us a round of notes we sent something back i got a 
call from my agent saying they're telling us that next week they're going to pick it up the next week they passed and then <laughs> we moved on um and then uh and the abc one we you know we went through more rounds of notes we kind of took a little a little longer with it i also feel like i don't know i've i've listened to your podcast for a long time and i feel like at first it was almost all you know broadcast shows so i felt like in it felt uh, if i had a broadcast pilot it felt almost uh you know, honoring the, sp the, the spirit of Dead Pilot Society <laughs> to send you that one. Um, yeah, so it's, you know, I've, you know we, you, I haven't read the comedy, so I'd be, I'd be curious too. Um, but it does have, you know, it, it, it has an ensemble feel and yet it also really feels like it's David's story, right? It, it doesn't, it, it's not quite like a, a tr feeling like a, true ensembles because yes. our eyes in character is so much david and we're really he's like he is feels like our protagonist um and but were you imagining that sort of uh, as it went on it would become much more of like we're just we're doing really friend style like everyone's got a storyline we're doing like abc storylines kind of thing I think I got that question a lot and I don't think it was a question. It was a suggestion, right? It was like, okay, let's make this an actual ensemble show. And everyone was right. I just don't think that I quite had the confidence to do that. Right? I felt like I knew what I sounded like. I knew what Barack Obama <laughs> sounded like, but the idea that I was going to try to juggle six different characters, even though I had signed up for that, I don't think I was really ready to 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 believe that I could do that as a writer. If I was uh, listening to the the read we did or thinking about it now, no question if I could do it again, I would say let's just make this an ensemble. Also, I would just come from writing a memoir, so I was very, very <laughs> used to writing in my voice and being really focused on what was up with me. Right. And I think all of that um would have changed. And the other piece too, I do think that came a little bit from Comedy Central where it was at the time, you know, Broad City, um but also like South Side, right? You had a lot of these shows that were um, sort of first, they they came from some, from the writer creator's experience, and it felt like at Comedy Central that made a lot of sense. And, and then when we brought it over to ABC, we should have done more to just say like, nope, this is an ensemble now. But uh, you know, I did not know that at the time. And like most things, right? Like it, it's that was obvious in hindsight, but um, I don't know that I would have thought about it at the time. I'm sure you've noticed how giant corporations are controlling more and more about what we consume, whether it's our food, our news, or even the shows we enjoy. The Greatest Generation is a show that stands up to big Star Trek and says no. We can laugh about costumes that fit too tightly in the groin area. We can make a Star Trek podcast that's basically only about that. The Greatest Generation, the show for free and independent thinkers about Star Trek. And the groins of different costumes. Reviewing every episode in order. So subscribe to The Greatest Generation on MaximumFun.org. You'll be doing your part in telling the Star Trek industrial complex that they can't control your mind. I'm also curious, Did when you took it out in that first round, and often you don't get a reason why, why networks pass, they just past right but I, I wonder if the the politics you know the the arena made people nervous and that that was the reason for some of those passes i mean did you were you ever told that um no not directly with that first round but i do think you know when, then when we started when comedy central passed and some abc obviously bought it but some other places didn't We'd hear that. I mean, I just had another project that has gotten a couple of passes and would set in the same 
game world or set in DC. And, you know, a lot of people really want to do political shows or shows that touch on politics until they really think about it. And then they say, actually, we don't want to do that at all. And I totally get that. Like it's, and, and I think it's the kind of thing where, it, and you know, I've, I've now done some shows in the DC world and some stuff that's not in the DC world. And to me, it's like DC stuff is great and I absolutely love it, but it's definitely the kind of thing that's either going to be for you or not. And that's true of the audience, but it's also true, I think, of, of buyers, of networks, of executives. If you're excited about that and you think you can make it work with your, you know, at, at your streamer, at your network, whatever, then you gravitate toward it. But otherwise, I, I see why it's a hard sell. I definitely think it's, uh, you know, it's easier to be in different spaces. And also... Um, when we started thinking about the show, Trump wasn't president. And so everything didn't feel so existential all the time. And I think that made a big, right. big difference in in how DC humor is because it doesn't feel as funny. I don't think it's as funny. Not the, the, yeah. not the pilot, but the world. Right. Now, it's interesting how you, you know, the how you navigated it in this in this pilot. You know, you're right. It's clear. Yeah, you're writing it. Things weren't quite as polarized, but you really do manage to sidestep a lot of this just sort of Democrat versus Republican kind of stuff. It's, I mean, you have the libertarian roommate where yeah. you can really, you know, do that, but, but otherwise it's, you're not, re, you're, you're finding a way to thread through without pretending that those things don't exist, but not really making yeah. it the, the text. The thing I love about Washington is that everybody believes in something. I mean, people who come to DC because they believe in something bigger than themselves. And some of those people are evil, but they still believe in something, right? Like that's, unfortunately, there's more evil people around here than there used to be. I think that's almost just a fact at this point. Um, but I do think that particularly when when this was being written, and this was almost trying to present a better version of DC, but there's people where you say, whoa, you are, I totally disagree with what you're doing. You're actively making the country worse, but I love your sense of wanting to do something big. Um, and you know, there's limits to that. And I think we have tested all of those limits <laughs> and continue to, but I think at the time that in theory, anyway, that's something that is very special about Washington. Um, and you know, I, another way I've always put it is like, even the people you hate are interesting. And so I think, um, I did want to capture some of that. And I think as far, we, the furthest I was willing to go was like a hardcore libertarian. And, and I have a friend who, I, who I kind of based her politics on his politics. And so it made sense. Um, but, you know, I do think it was we spent a lot of time thinking about how to deal with that. And then if the David character ever made it to the White House, it would have been this question of like, who's the president? And, you know, uh, how does that all going to work? Because this was during the Trump era. But yeah. um, we never we never got to that point. And I'm you know, I'm not glad, but I will say we wouldn't have had a very good, like obvious answer to it. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, it just makes me think that. So, you know, for ABC, who initially passes, but then says yes. You know, they have the advantage of being able to read a version of the script where they can see, oh, wait, this isn't really what we're yes. afraid of. You know, <laughs> like we can see that there's a tone that's struck here that, you know, threads the needle and isn't this, you know, ugly polarization, uh, you know, whereas when it's a pitch, they may be imagining something that's just so much, you know, politics, politics, politics. Yeah. Um, and well, and how, yeah. How, how much of this... Um, you know, what's autobiographical, you know, in this pilot? So the, the very first scene, putting a cup of a full cup of coffee through the metal detector, mm -hmm. I didn't ruin anybody's purse, but that, um, that moment, 
uh, it was like the first week I was at the White House and I just put a, a full cup of iced coffee through the metal detector and it spilled everywhere. And the, the Secret Service agent, you know, who kind of picked it up was just like, gave me this look like they hired you really like <laughs> uh, it was like it was like mentally you could be like okay he's definitely not getting saved if there's an attack and um and so i do think you know that kind of thing right thinking about all of those you definitely all of the stuff about trying to learn how to tie a tie i spent a lot of time when i first moved to dc just trying to learn how to tie a tie not somewhat functionally and and uh did settle on the half windsor um and i think that was you know that was definitely those little things were autobiographical. And then some of the pieces that were, you know, um, uh, I'm trying to think about how to exactly put it, right? They weren't autobiographical, but thinking about, about the role of happy hour in DC, that kind of thing was definitely trying to say, here's stuff that I've kind of picked up from this world that you wouldn't know if you had spent the last 10 years writing, you know, you, you might know more about how to write a comedy pilot if you've been in LA writing comedy pilots. But on the other hand, you wouldn't have the specificity from being in D.C. So we really tried and I really tried when I was working on it to think about how to make sure that was in the script. Yeah, I mean, that seems like it's the gold. I mean, it seems like, you know, I don't know if, if that was all in there when you were pitching. If I was supervising you, I'd be like, the pitch should be all this kind of stuff, all about ties and happy hours yeah. and like how we are going to really take you inside of a world i've talked on you know in other interviews about the the moment in the at the beginning of the west wing pilot where they say potus and, mm -hmm. you know and suddenly we're told what potus means and yeah. you have to remember we didn't know we did we didn't know that term <laughs> and it was just something like this is cool someone knows their shit here we're going to be really you know peek behind the curtain and we all crave that right so it just seems like you know you having been there someone with a comedian's brain you know observing all of these things and being able to bring you know it's it's about that stuff it's about the texture of yeah. life there and it it's funny how these things change like uh, and i i wrote about this in my book that like potus at first was very cool and like in the west wing era was definitely the clinton era very cool then by the Obama years, everyone started using POTUS. And so like cool kids switched. And so if you said like the boss, that was a sign that you were very cool mm -hmm. as a staffer. Um, but you never the pre like the president was was only if something big was happening. Or like <laughs> if you would email and you wouldn't write POTUS, you would just write P, like, you know, P asked, et cetera, et cetera. And that was like another sign that you were extremely cool. So I, I, it took me a while to get to POTUS. And then I was like, I don't, I don't think I can navigate the rest of it. The other thing I forgot to mention, I did my first job in DC was as an intern at a crisis communications firm that was just really evil. And <laughs> uh, I was like the opposite. Uh, it could not have been more different than the Obama campaign. And, um, and I ended up there because I knew someone who knew someone. And I was terrible at my job and they hated me. Like it was the middle of a recession and I almost got fired as an intern. Um, and I, I like moved my office into the break room without permission. And then I started working from home without permission, which was way ahead of my time. And uh, so it was a disaster. So that also, I was looking forward to the chance to really play out that, uh, that experience more. But, uh, you know, that, so that also came from my life. Right, right. You know, just you, you, you've got great life experience and you know um 
that that's you know that would have been the best the best parts uh, you know of this show had it gone you know it, it does seem it's a tricky thing i think about like alpha house i mean I, I don't know how much you you know obviously there's veep right there you know in the drama world there's the west wing and then the comedy world there's veep which is a show everyone can agree just like nailed it and was great um yeah i don't know as an insider you know what you thought of alpha house or 1600 pen or some of the other attempts you know i think to me, Veep was great because it got to the what it's really like to be on staff, and the and the sense of how um, low how the low stakes things are going to like actually take up most of your day, and that I really enjoyed. And West Wing, obviously, you know, I grew up on basically like you know I would have the DVDs in college, and my roommates and I would all <laughs> sit and rewatch them over and over and over again because we were those people. So I think the what I was interested in and what I'm still, I'm still like someone should do this show and ideally it should be me, but someone should do it. Someone will do it is the young people in DC show. Cause I think that's where DC is actually really interested in. is less the like important people in positions of power. I think is a fascinating thing that happens in Washington because it happens in this in this very high stakes backdrop. Um, so I think that's, you know, that that's still, I mean, it's still something I would love to try to do at some point. Um, but I think that to me, that's always been my theory of this would be a great DC show. Um, and, and you know, and part of it at this point is we've spent so much time in the White House on Air Force One that when you're in the actual White House or on actual Air Force One, you're like, oh, this reminds me of TV. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> um, there was a brief period where you could watch Air Force One on Air Force One, which I thought was really cool. <laughs> but then again, all of the people who were on more trips than I was had already done that or they were like too cool for that. So I, I never I never suggested it. Yeah, I mean, it has has to describe it. You know, you said I was like a freshman. They were seniors. The whole thing has this very high school feel to it where there's just this coolness hierarchy, you know, oh, totally. at every level, which just lends itself great to comedy and everyone's so young right like i started at the white house when i was 24 and i was working for favreau who was i think 29 and i was like he's an old person right like <laughs> and then we had there was one speech writer literally one who had children and like they were really young children like you know he may he was probably 35 he's younger than i am now and i was like that okay he is he could give us perspective on like seniors right <laughs> <laughs> so everybody was so young and I think that is also, I mean, DC is just run by by children in a way that is really fascinating and terrifying. So I do think that's another part of it that you you live through all of those experiences so quickly and and everything that happens when you're trying to figure out what you want your DC career life to be also happens when you're trying to figure out what you want your dating life to be or what you want, you know, the rest of your personal life to be. Um, and so that the fact that all those things are happening together, I think, you know, I feel like I'm now pitching you a show that you know did not go. But were I to pitch it, that that's that would be part of the pitch. I think that's such a that, to me, that's just a really fun and uh, overlooked part of Washington. Yeah. And it's a great pitch. I mean, it's got everything that people look, you know, the executives look for. It's your story. You know, you, you like you really live this. It's, you know, you're passionate about it. There, you've 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 got an insider's knowledge. Um, you know, you can see why it would, you can both see why it would sell and why it's, a, it's a tough one to get actually to make it all the way through. 
Yeah, although I will say, you know, both at Comedy Central and ABC, I felt like partly, you know, because I had listened to like script notes when it first came out. I forget when you started doing this podcast, but I've listened to it. You know, I've listened to every episode, a lot of them twice. And so I felt like I learned a lot about script writing sort of just by hearing people who had done it. And I was very primed for just terrible network notes. And I really enjoyed, like, I'm not just saying it. I thought we got really good, smart notes from both networks in different different directions, but really smart. And I think that was, um, you know, in some ways it was like, it, I was able to go into it saying, hey, all I want is like a great learning experience because I've never done this before. And I know it's not a high percentage thing. And I felt like that's exactly, you know, I, I would have loved to have gotten more than that, but that's exactly what I got. I learned a ton from, uh, you know, from the executives who I really feel like you know, the comedy team at ABC in particular, they really tried to make it work. But the note where I was like, this is good. This is a problem was at one point when they had started to have conversations, they were like, we just are not like, this doesn't totally feel like something we do. And I was like, that sounds bad. (laughs) (laughs) That doesn't sound like a note. That sounds like a serious problem. Um, And it was, yeah, it was interesting. I like called some people and it was, I got really good advice about what to do about that note. But by the time I would, would have been able to implement it, it, it was too late. That's a tough one. That's a bit of an yeah. existential threat to your to your pilot. Yep. <laughs> well, it's, and it's something I didn't realize about TV, which I, was actually helpful for me to learn that you're the way I think about it now is like you're creating this delicious dish, but the restaurant might be like, oh, actually, while you were working on this, we went from being like, you know, a Chinese restaurant to being a Nordic restaurant. And then, then you're like, OK, well, clearly, yeah. like this is really tasty, but it's just obviously does not belong on this menu. Um, and I just yeah. never thought about that. I had sort of always assumed that they're like, oh, what would, you know, what's funny? All right, we'll take that. And it's oh, God, more no. complicated than that. Yeah, that's definitely <laughs> yes. not how that works. That is not how it works. And the mandate changes all the time. And the mandate's likely to be different when you, you know, when you've sold it to when you they're they're making the pickups, like the mandate could totally change. So, so yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> that's right. That is particularly uh, frustrating, I guess. But it is, it, at least it was nice to like find that out. I, I will say, I think that's like, right. you know, there were so many things that I just did not know at all about sort of this format of writing that I learned through this process. So it was, that was good. And so then you wrote, you know, so this, I don't know what the timeline is exactly, but after this, you know, you wrote another book, you wrote Democracy in One Book or Less, which is great. And I highly recommend to anyone listening. It's just, it's so valuable and funny and just, a, it's a great book. So that Thanks. you wrote that uh where's where are we in the timeline so weirdly the show young professionals took a while to just get going right we were looking for a showrunner we were looking and then i think i also didn't realize again with this that there wasn't a huge timeline this was on comedy central so it wasn't pilot season so i kept being like when's the deadline i'm used to speech writing Mm -hmm. where it was like okay this needs to be done you know 24 hours and as a writer you kind of have to push it forward in a way that i was not used to doing um, and so it took a, a really long time to get going. So I wrote my second book, which came out in, in June 2020, um, a great time for books to come out. Uh, <laughs> and um, and this, uh, by the time, I think we, we technically the pilot was, this pilot was still alive when my second book came out. Um, you know, it, it, the pandemic had clearly like put some writing on the wall um, about where, whether this was likely to really go. But uh, I don't think, I think it actually, my, the book, which was, then this was a book that basically was like political science, but for people who don't like political science and especially about voting rights and 
gerrymandering and judges and all the gazillion other threats to our democracy. Um, and uh, and so that, yeah, came out in 2020. And then I think I think it was like October when the pilot officially died um, for young professionals. So it was this was a long process, but I was doing a lot of other stuff while I was also kind of moving the ball forward with uh, with this pilot. Right. And okay, so since then, I mean, you write for The Guardian uh, a bunch, right? I see your byline there a lot. Um, and then what's, you know, what's been happening, you know, TV wise? Yeah, so I actually just had a pilot that my friend Claire, also an exit player from the, the improv comedy <laughs> group. Uh, we have been working on a pilot for NBC. Unfortunately, that just got passed on a couple of weeks ago. So, um, and then I have a couple of other things that are kind of in the works there. And then a, a Christmas movie that I'm working on that is not at all political, but <laughs> I'm excited to do, uh, you know, in, in addition to all the other stuff, I became one of those Jews who's really into Christmas because my wife is a, uh, uh, you know, she's not super religious, but I describe her as a fundamentalist about secular Christmas. So <laughs> I kind of got into it. And so now I'm like, all right, it feels like the Jews did all the best Christmas culture. Uh, mm -hmm. I should write Christmas movie. So uh, that's what I'm working on now. And then I'm doing another, I signed up to do another pair of memoirs. Um, one about sort of like trying to get over my pandemic era depression by surfing poorly. Um, so I'm working on that. And then, and then some other TBD memoir. So something has to happen to me and then I'm going to write a, a book about that. And we'll see how it goes. Okay. Um, wow. That's, you know, for, you know, what are you 36? You're yeah, working, so you know three memoirs and uh before you're 40 is <laughs> yes that's is literally it, verbatim what my dad said uh, <laughs> uh he said it in a tone that was even less uh you know sort of uh curious or matter of fact um I, the other thing that i think is is uh is tricky is i feel like there should be a, a book category that is like real life stories but we're not going to call it a memoir call it a memoir it that's no, pretentious, right? Yeah, like this happened to me. Um, stories. <laughs> we'll go with that. I'm writing two books of this happened to me. Uh, it just okay. hasn't happened to me yet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm not saying it with judgment. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just impressed. No, my, um, my dad said it with a little judgment. I'll, <laughs> now, <laughs> um, I get it, but yeah. It, it does seem like you're able, you know, when I read your, you know, your stuff in the guardian or, you know, the book, it, it feels like for a lot of us that follow politics, it's just, it, it's hard to keep the sense of humor about it these days. Like it, it just, it feels so awful um, that it's, it almost goes beyond, you know, comedy, but, but you, you, you seem able to do that and to just sort of, keep a level head um and do you attribute that to just having you know having been in the world for for a long time and seeing it and, and that sort of changes the attitude around it no i think that it's first of all i think it's harder and harder um because sometimes things are not funny and and increasingly those things are happening in our political process um, I mean, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now is less political. The NBC show that I was working on that, unfortunately, we just got a pass on, but that was like a very traditional multicam family comedy. There was like sort of little bits of political stuff in there, but very, very, you know, on the outside of it. And I do think it's more fun to be outside of that. And I also think for me, the question that I, I'm interested in, that I still think there's just a lot of funny stuff around is 
how do we all live together and how do we just like make it work as families, as a society, as a country like that? I think this, this thing where you're sort of thrown in with people that you didn't choose, whether that's your family or like, you know, people who maybe are like into storming the Capitol, right? That, that is a strange thing that you all have to figure it out. Um, now with the strong capital people, they should be in prison, but like broadly speaking. And so I do think that that is, um, you know, that stuff that I'm still always interested in the specifics of, of politics. Some, you know, I think there in the beginning of the Trump era, there's this idea that like comedy would save us. And I remember somebody like a, you know, someone who's in their early twenties saying, I either want to be a comedy writer or I want to get into political campaigns. And, you know, I, so I would just want to make the world better. And I was like, well, if you want to do that, you should get into political campaigns. Like <laughs> comedy writing is great. And I really respect people who do it. Um, and I've done some of it myself, but it's, if, you, if you're going to pick one thing to change the world, do the one that's changing the world full time. Um, and I think that is generally, that's generally like, they're not equivalent. And I think there was a while where we sort of thought like, you know, those two things were totally the same and they're not the same. They're, they absolutely both have a place and I love them both, but they're different. Can you imagine going back into politics? Um, maybe, uh, I think it depends on the, the circumstances, right? Like I think if Trump, I was going to say, if he runs again, I guess he's running. Like if he wins again, I feel like I should try to do something. I don't know what that would look like. So I, I'm kind of at a, a sort of age and point in my life where it would be like, if the, if there's something I could do that would be helpful and a reason that that would be particularly helpful or the alternative would be particularly terrifying, then I feel like I should be able to tell any future children or grandchildren that I did something. Um, but at the same time, it's not, it, you know, it's an interesting thing about having a like mini career, uh, which you know, I feel like I would like a decade long DC career. And so then you're like, oh, I have things that I'm good at, but also that means that there's a lot of things I can't, doesn't make sense for me to do. So it's a very different, um, you know, it's different being kind of like uh, looking at, at the political landscape now than it was, let's say when I was 22 and I, my, my life plan was like, I'll unpack boxes till someone hires me, which was a good life plan for 22, but wouldn't right. quite work right now. <laughs> yeah. They, you know, they're both, they're both, both tough roads to hoe. Showbiz yeah. <laughs> politics. You you know well, you haven't picked. You know neither's easy. Yeah, I mean the the thing that I feel like I really the things that I took from one to the other, the, just the level of uncertainty. Um, and I do think that's like, uh, you know, the, the the writing was not all that helpful to go from one one to one, but the sort of the sense of pressure and um, you know the we'll just say big personalities, right? Like. And the sense that and, and in the Obama White House, people were really good at their jobs. We had a pretty good. But like, you know, if you talk to people who work on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, the, the, this is what I was trying to capture in the pilot. There's people who are just terrible at their jobs, who are very important jobs. And so that kind of thing. Right. Like, OK, there, there's some analogies that are some crossover um, kind of emotionally between being a writer in, in TV and film and being a writer in politics, for sure. Yeah, it seems like I mean, they'll, you know, I only know show business, but I know for you know, it will try and break you, right? It, it will just <laughs> continuously try to break you, um, and so yeah. so much of it is just persevering, right? Just yeah, I mean, to... yeah, I, I so I will say the the biggest difference is that in 
the DC world, there is there is that, but it's usually at the end of the day, everyone is trying to do something, right? Like they're trying to do something very real. And in show business, by definition, none of it's real. They're they're making yeah. it up. That's the whole point. And so people are almost more, um, you know, not everybody, but the people who are like this are more like this, where people can get more um, uh, kind of unhinged because there's nothing, there's no reality that tethers them. Um, and unfortunately, that's truer <laughs> in politics too. But no, it's, I mean, that's the other, the other thing that I learned is like, you know, the pilot has a lot to do with the difference between lying and spinning. And again, I've worked with great people in Hollywood, but bad people in Hollywood just lie in a, way, in a way that like in in politics, I was like, again, Trump era accepted, right? But like, I was like, I, I didn't know people just lie. People <laughs> tell you things that are sort of true or like misleading. But then when I, you know, uh, um, this, I wrote about this also in the book, well before all the other Harvey Weinstein stuff came out, I ended up getting yelled at on him by him on the phone for a, a speech that I was working on at the Democratic National Con uh, Convention in 2012. And he just kept lying. And it was really <laughs> weird. It was like, I didn't know people do this. Um, and then obviously he was lying about a lot more serious stuff. So I'm not like trying to, you know, but it was, uh, it was a, er, you know, very early uh, introduction to like unhinged Hollywood people. They're different. Yeah. Well, look, I, um, I, I'm so glad that you, you, you sent this and we got to read, it was really, it was really fun. I love, and you know, I especially loved all, I love David and Suresh, you know, it's funny. It's just like, I could see, you know, that stuff was just like, you know, it's, it's not like, I'm not saying that's the only good stuff, but it's like, you could tell that was media and you felt that and you knew those, you know, you, you loved writing that relationship and it really comes through you know uh all the levels of of the the two of their interaction is just great yeah no i i i felt um watching it on zoom and then listening to it i kind of felt the same where i was like there was el el other elements but i definitely felt like oh man if there there was a way to get the rest of it to feel like that so it's good to have sort of uh you know challenges and goals um with my own writing because I, I felt like but also to say okay if i could do that in that way then you know you can do it again i think that's generally true in writing as well yeah well it's awesome that we were able to provide your first actual reading of, <laughs> yes that's uh, of, of your yes your i was material. able to subvert the the mandate of dead pilot society <laughs> yeah. by uh you know getting on the air for the first time on uh <laughs> on your podcast but I, i'm really uh i'm i'm glad i was able to uh fool you um <laughs> or at least otherwise convince you to, to have it on it was really fun to listen to it and uh, and you know I, i've told you this a bunch of times but i'm a huge fan of the podcast and really learned a lot about how to navigate this world and how to write you know tv as opposed to other stuff um from listening to the cable reads and the interviews so no, Not I love hearing guess, that. But I, 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 no, I love hearing that. I, I, you know, I've sometimes when you have young aspiring writers like what should I do? I'm like, I don't know. I have this podcast. I think would be helpful to you. And so yes. it's nice to hear from someone who's like, you know what? It was helpful. No, it's, I, I recommend it to all kinds of people who are like, I want to learn how to write a pilot, or I want to write for TV. And it's like, well, the first thing you need a pilot, um, and you should listen to this podcast. And and yours and a lot of you know, like I said, skirt notes, the writers panel. There's a ton of others. I do feel like we're living in this world where it's a lot easier to be a writer across formats because you can check in with the people who are the best at that format and they will tell you because they have podcasts exactly why they do what they do. 
Um, and it makes it much easier to be the kind of person who says like, do I want this to be a book or a movie or a show? Right. Like that's, it's still hard, but it's, I think it is more doable than it used to be in part because you can, you can kind of just ask people, I mean, even they don't know you're asking them, right? You can listen to people talk about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's one of the reasons we do this. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Well, David, this was great. Always nice to talk to a fellow exit player. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, people, I'll, I'll keep plugging the books because they're, you know, it's really, they're great. Um, so thanks, David. Yes, thank you. This was really fun. Really hope you enjoyed that. Thank you to David. Dead Pilot Society is produced by me and my co-host Ben Blacker and our associate producer Noah Findling. It is edited and mixed by Jordan Katz. Our theme song is by Ted Leo. Uh, if you like the show and you haven't already, go ahead and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps. Tell a friend about us. You can follow us on social media. Find out the latest. We're on Twitter uh, at Dead Pilots Pod. We're on Instagram at Dead Pilot Society. Until next time, I'm Andrew Reich. Thank you for listening. Maximumfun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.